implying the stuff we talk about isn't as important? No, I'm implying that we started the recording. We're recording. Like seven minutes ago. <laughs> No one's had enough to drink to be as punchy as all of us are. <laughs> uh, hello, gentle listener. <laughs> Welcome to My- Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. Michael Lilienthal, and with me in the same room as me is my guest Ethan Bartlett. Hello. Uh, this has been a while. It has, and we finally got our wives to go into a different room so that we can talk about books. That seems like the sort of thing to say in a loud voice to keep them mm-hmm. in the other That's room. That's right. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know if it's a you know masochistic thing or or what, but like you know, the, the, I, I like to taunt them. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's. You know, that's a... No, I can't think of anything to follow up on the phrase masochist. So don't get me in trouble with you, them, or the gentle listener. And probably all three. Cut your losses. <laughs> I'd prefer to cut your losses. Wouldn't everybody? <laughs> and this has been our segment where we, like, say things that sound like they have meaning. <laughs> It's our whole podcast, isn't it? Oh, oh. Is that just all that language is? Hmm. hmm. Yeah, got him. I won I won this podcast. <laughs> won this episode. Oh, good job. I was good like job. my coworker in the in the kitchen that I work in and I my former coworker. Anyway, you don't we don't need to draw a charter. No, tell me but, this whole story. Um Give me the he and story. I, I'm the cook, he's the baker. <laughs> we used to spend long hours in the kitchen and we'd end up like sniping at each other um you might which be familiar, one was the candlestick maker you might be familiar with this uh the sort of uh dynamic from four years of our podcast mm, yes. five years um yeah so what uh what what we kind of would get to the point where it'd be like we had no new insults to say but we didn't <laughs> want the other one to get to the last word uh so we would just be like you know what in like a very threatening tone and then just like leave it there <laughs> Uh yes, the the implication is enough. Exactly. Well, we haven't had any scotch yet. We haven't. Would you like to have some? I would love to have some. Well, here's the scotch that we're drinking for this episode. (gasps) Oh, you do love me. I do. It's Lafroy, ten year single malt scotch whiskey. Uh, But what are you gonna drink? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This, uh, this is one that's been, like, uh, in the back of my mind for a while, and finally I decided it, ne- it needed to happen. Okay, so. so we have not had this one on this podcast. We have not had okay. Lafroy on the podcast, no. Probably thinking of the time you brought Lagavulin. Yes, we did have Lagavulin, which is time. similar in a lot of ways, but it is a scotch that we have both had previously. Yes. So. It's one of those scotches that I sort of will buy extracurricularly periodically. Oh, sure. Uh, so that's why I can't remember when and where I've had it. Right. And you're all, your wife already has a drink, so you kept the rule. I have. And here's... Even though I made her make it and then I made fun of it. <laughs> so did you keep the rule? Do we need to ask? She has a drink and we're not asking her. She's already out to get me. Okay. Well, I'm going to go deliver this to my wife. Have your wife come in. Oh, and read the rules. Yes. Trapped. That's not what trap means. I've kept the rule. I'm tempted to institute a new rule <laughs> where you have to uh, say I kept the rule in exactly that kind of <laughs> sing-songy kind of... Uh, yeah, the exact way you did it just now. The, the exact intonation. Yeah, and see, that's going to be a difficult rule to enforce because I am going to have to like match up the waveforms 
So we'll only know if you lost after, like, after I edit the podcast together. <laughs> then I might have to, like, call you up and punish you. Would that be gratifying to the listener? Well, they wouldn't hear me cut, like, they. I would just cut. There's this thing you can do on podcasts oh, okay. that's called editing, and yeah, I would yeah, do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or okay. we'd do a whole special where I punish you for an hour, and that would also be gratifying <laughs> to the listener. Got it. I just noticed on this uh, little slip yes, of paper from I was LaCroix, actually literally going to ask if you wanted to talk about this before we clink glasses. I, I think I can't. have to. I didn't know yeah. this was a thing. It's like in the ep- the you know the episode of Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson gets to go to Scotland. Right. In that of this podcast, this is what we're doing. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, it, but tell them what the thing was. It, it's a little green booklet uh, that says your passport to Isla. And then on the bottom it says, claim your free square foot of our island. So I'm just being gifted some land here? Yeah, so basically, as I understand it, I don't know if you have to take this little booklet or something to prove that you did buy a bottle, but if you go to the Lafroy Distillery um, on oh. Isla, in Isla, uh, they, you get a square foot of soil to plant to literally plant your flag in oh my goodness and it's just the most like darling thing that is darling it's like it just warms my heart every time i i buy a bottle and uh, that's so cute uh, oh yeah you get each bottle has like a unique, unique number but number i'm not gonna tell anybody what the number is because well, yeah mine. Then it, yeah then it wouldn't be yours it wouldn't be unique but right so okay well i'm special gentle listener now you know Yep. If you didn't know before, which you should have known before, but now you know for sure. I'm special. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we have sort of a, a proof of that, you know, recorded proof of that right. for future generations. Right. It has been recorded and it is there. So, where's your wife? Uh, and that's that's where I'm going to put... put... <laughs> Okay, alright. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Karen. Uh, and fresh reading, as always. Yes, very good. Uh, it's remarkable how she manages to make the same material sort of new every time. It, yep, you know, you could hear it a thousand times and get something new out of it every every time. Yep. So, um, l'chaim. Schlenk. All right, so... This time around, Ethan, we are going to be reading uh, or discussing the book that we have already read, The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Reese. Yes. Um, so, this, uh, ooh, ooh, we should let the, the listeners read it. So now we you should. know what the book is. If you didn't see it on the title of the episode, Gentle Listener, uh, Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Reese. So go read it now. And welcome back. So now you can join the discussion, now that you've read the book. Um, this is your pick, Ethan. Yes. And, okay, so when I told people uh, about the book that 
I was reading and what it was about. I basically gave the summary that it's a rewriting of sort of part of Jane Eyre from the perspective of Bertha, Rochester's first wife. Rochester's crazy attic wife. Crazy attic wife, yes. Which is a deeply problematic phrasing, but (laughs) that is what I always call her. It's, you know, incumbent upon me to be honest. Not wrong, um, in a certain sense. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I, I had not heard of this book before. Um, but it, the, the edition that we both have is the Norton critical edition. There's so much extra stuff in here. Yeah. Uh, it, I I don't want to go quite to the point that we did with like, um, when we were discussing Playboy of the Western world and just discuss the whole thing of everything, but I'm sure that some of this will, will, uh, trickle into the discussion of the book itself because just looking at the book, um, the the text of Wide Sargasso Sea is about a third of the pages of this book. Yes. It's very short, um, but also there's a lot going on. Absolutely. And uh, as I know I've said about easily 50% of the texts um, on, this, on this podcast, uh, I felt like I should have read it a second time before even, like, oh. starting to... I, to discuss it. I think that might have been more true for this book than a lot of other books in, really, like, in my eyes. This set of books between uh, oh, sure. Wide Sargasso Sea and Despair, mm-hmm. both of them. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I should have read both of them twice before even sitting down to discuss them, and I did it with, spoiler alert, neither of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, me neither. But at least unlike some texts that I read in grad school, I did read both of them fully once. Uh, I'm just full of like personal confessions on this one i guess okay all right you know that's okay um this is a safe space you're you're allowed to do that um okay so i i want to think about the concept of this first just that this is a retelling of jane Eyre or the backstory of jane yeah i mean i i think and i don't know if you're like on a on a train of thought you want to finish quick but one thing i do think we have to interrogate is even the use of of those words retelling or or backstory or whatever that's part of my my question here for for discussion is it a retelling um is it in any sense a revisionary novel sure um and if so in what sense (laughs) right um because like it doesn't actually cover any almost any of the ground of Jane Eyre until you get to the last part. Right. Uh, and that's where it starts crossing over into virtually the whole book of Jane Eyre in, right. like, 15 pages. Um, yeah, in, in a really, in a sort of an interesting way that mm-hmm. um, I, I hope we'll at least touch on at some point. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I... I certainly would not call it a retelling. Sure. Uh, I, to me, a, a retelling sort of is like it's the same story, but from a different character's perspective. And I don't think that that's like, you know, there's there's a Venn diagram with overlapping circles, but they're mm-hmm. not a ton overlapping between those that definition of a retelling and what's going on in this book. Yeah. Um. So I yeah retelling it I'm not necessarily comfortable with the like trivializing or uh, slightly jokey um, version of it and I'm trying to remember if there's a term for this or, or what it would be called but it's almost like Jane Eyre fan fiction sure um, if you weren't a fan of Jane Eyre right <laughs> <laughs> or at least not necessarily um, like it. <laughs> So, so I, I, the the trivializing part that I was I was mentioning is like one of my first first touch points, I guess, in this realm is a, uh, um, you know, Star Wars, right? Uh huh. Um, yep, heard of it. Uh, like Star Trek, but the science is better. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, Star Wars. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh. I mean, you know, that fact about midichlorians is pretty compelling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. like George Lucas 
yeah. used his PhD in science to write the Phantom Menace. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, okay. So in in Star Wars, in the original Star Wars, what is now commonly known as a New Hope, um, mm-hmm. there's a scene where uh, Luke Skywalker and company go into a bar on this like backwater planet right the, mm-hmm. the, the bar in in moss Eisley. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's called the cantina and there's a whole like like 40s retro futuristic 40s thing going on um well in the 90s when the a group of of writers and artists were sort of building out the backstory of the the star wars universe in earnest um a collection of short stories came out called tales from the moss Eisley cantina hmm. um and that fun. It, it was as i as i remember you know reading it at age 15 it was quite fun mm. um but it you know it takes like characters who are in in star wars for you know sometimes seconds of screen time and you know builds out entire sometimes you know decently lengthy stories for them mm-hmm. right um and one i remember is like the there's a whole short story about the stormtrooper who gets shot who falls forward as if he's been shot in the back when mm. uh luke and, and han solo are making their getaway a little bit later oh, uh and it's a whole thing like it's from the perspective of the stormtrooper who's like started to question the empire mm. and like he sees that his captain like has a bead on Luke Skywalker and could shoot him down. So he shoots the captain in the back and like, that's why the guy falls forward. Um, Wow. So, you know, you've taken this character who's arguably on screen for zero to like maybe 40 seconds total, Mm -hmm. depending on who you assume, which stormtrooper is, uh, and made him responsible for like, the fate of the star wars galaxy in the sense that he got luke skywalker not killed not right right. um and again it feels like trivial in comparison to how monumental this book is in some ways but like the touch point in my brain was like this is the the tales from the moss eisley cantina of jane Jane. Eyre. um it's it's the entire story from a completely different perspective and you know there's certainly other cultural including silly cultural touchstones you could you could uh view it from but like so i don't know that that's i guess you could argue that it's a retelling but yeah that word retelling captures like the smallest amount of what's going on right and i don't think I like the term retelling either. Um, what was the other term you used in framing this question? Uh, revisionary. Yeah. Um, which, that comes from the the back of the, the book um, here. Jean Reese, a native of Dominica, wrote Wide Sargasso Sea as a revision of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, focusing her novel on Bertha, the Jamaican madwoman locked in the attic of the British Manor House. Uh, that's the, just the first sentence of um, the summary of the book. Right. So this revision, and I think in some of the, the criticism in the back, too, there was something about revisionary writing, uh, revisionary literature. Sure. Um, and, like, does it... Revisionary means, like, you're revising it. You're changing something, right? So, like, it changes our perspective of Jane Eyre. And there is one piece of criticism um, on page 217 uh, by Caroline Rohde. It's uh, Burning Down the House, the Revisionary Paradigm of Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea. Um, and there, about the middle of the f- first paragraph, um, says, We can no longer think of our cherished, cherished heroine Jane Eyre in the same way, having glimpsed her once as Reese's mad Bertha glimpses her, a pale girl humming to herself as she walks wearily through the house of a man who, unbeknownst to her, has already destroyed the life of the woman who watches her pass. Um, and I wonder how true that is. <laughs> Sure. Um, that like I I don't necessarily I, I'm not firm on my conviction about whether this is a revisionary novel or not, um, and I think that comes too from just some of Jean Reese's like letters and um, interviews and 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 such that you see in here too that she has kind of a love hate relationship with Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte sure. like she likes it but maybe some of it thought could be expanded. 
Sure. Um, which strikes me more as that sort of fan fiction rather than um, like a revision, which revision seems a little more hostile. I don't know. Um, to me, revision has the potential to seem hostile. Sure. I don't know that it... I guess it maybe depends on your definition of the word hostile, but hmm. um, I guess like in literary studies, revision often has almost a connotation to almost mean like something like updating. Okay. Where you've taken an earlier text that says something, but then you've added a dimension to it um, that either was sort of... The, the most direct way is like it's something that was buried in the original text mm. that you've, you've sort of brought to the surface. Mm -hmm. um, a, a really like crude example of that, I guess, would be like if you took some of the, you know sex scenes that are sort of buried in 18th and 19th century novels and like played them out explicitly on the sure on the page um or but but sometimes it's like it, it is more of a straight up adding to something that already exists so you've revised it by um you know looking at the same story with someone else's sensibility okay um or or another the sensibility of another worldview or paradigm or mm -hmm. anything sort of along those lines in that sense yeah i could see this as definitely a revisionary novel um i guess i think some of the uh impression i get is when the criticism comes to it and the just the impressions of of reading this book not necessarily mine um but that it's a book that seeks to right a wrong um yeah and I don't know, I don't know whether that's accurate. I, it might be. I don't know if it is. Sure. Um, you've got this character of Bertha in Jane Eyre, who Jean Reese latches onto for the sake of this novel, um, and perhaps has some um, further agenda to that. I don't. I don't even like the term agenda here. Um, but uh, she's expanding that character in a way that Jane Eyre doesn't. Um, but does she do so in order to give more justice to the character, in order to um, make us understand the character, or just to add a dimension to the story of Jane Eyre? Sure. And I, I, I mean, I think you can call it revisionist or revisionary, even if mm. that's even if that's the whole project, even if it's just to add, because in in Jane Eyre, Bertha is very much an antagonist. Mm -hmm. um, she in in the literal sense that she's an obstacle in the narrative objective of getting Jane and Rochester together. Right. Um, and to to really satisfactorily like make a pronouncement on the answer some of some of the questions anyway of of how revisionist it might be beyond that um to do that i think one would have to go into some of the history that i certainly am not an authority on uh -huh. um but my suspicion is that uh a character like bertha someone who's sort of a uh, you know, disgraced, probably crazy, you know, uh, figure from the Caribbean, um, that that is someone that even, even an author like, um, Charlotte Bronte would find it easy to, to caricature and to make, uh, an antagonist, if not a villain out of someone you can sort of hmm. set up as a narrative pin to knock over. Right. Um, because in, and, you know, uh, uh, full disclosure slash permission, permission to treat the witness as hostile. Mm -hmm. I do not like Jane Eyre uh, uh -huh. at all. Like I, I, many people I respect do like it. Um, but I, I just, I find more, 
bad than good when I when I evaluate Jane Eyre as a as a text. And one of the one of the things that I like one of the major reasons for that has to do with basically just sort of treating this this ruined human life as a just sort of a, a shadow a, a part of the chiaroscuro of rochester's mm-hmm. background uh-huh. like bertha isn't a real character in jane eyre she's just uh stage dressing sure um and so to take that like to take the the uh least you know argu- arguably the least sort of most minor character who's almost more of a plot device than a character <laughs> in jane eyre to take that character and you know foreground her as the mm-hmm. the main character of your novel i think that's inherently revisionist inherently revisionary sure. um again like beyond to get too far beyond that i would be going into eras areas of like history cultural criticism <laughs> and or trying to read jean reese's mind that i'm not necessarily right. as comfortable which is what all the criticism in the back of the book is is done for you so yeah which i <laughs> i i poked around in it i i meant to again things i meant to do and didn't i meant to read more sort of uh thoroughly into that and sure did not um i was gonna say I mean, you know, these, these, like, Wide Sargasso Sea in lit studies programs, especially, I think, mm. since, like, well, it was written in 66, right? Ye- yeah. Yes. Um, almost since it came out, certainly within 10 to 15 years of its coming out, is, like, a very popular and intensely studied mm. text. So a lot of these critics are, you know, I mean, certainly they're far more qualified than I am to... <laughs> To you know, know know the history that that Reese is touching on, and know the, uh, um, you know, know the the background stuff, and even to right. to, to read Reese's mind to an extent, and yeah, know, as much as they've read, you know, her letters and her her right uh, everything surrounding stuff. Yeah, um, I I will say I did really appreciate everything this edition brought. Um, yes, <clears throat> I, I I don't think I have any footnotes to complain about this time around, so. <laughs> Um, so that's something, but yeah, I mean, the, there's a lot of, uh, information here that's really helpful. Uh, and that, that cr- it, it's, it's not surprising to me that it had such a critical response, not, sure. not negative, but just like the response of criticism, uh, uh resonance, um, maybe. yeah, resonance, uh, so, so early as soon as it came out and ongoing, yeah. um, because it, it is a dense, dense book. You're you're taking something, and, and perhaps with the, the backdrop of uh, Jane Eyre, uh, that, that helps. It, it doesn't necessarily fill in gaps, but it gives um, maybe a little more of the flavor to it. But even without that, I think it stands on its own. Sure. Um, and it's just as interesting without knowing anything about Jane Eyre. Sure. Um, there are certain things that... Uh, are, are interesting to examine in distinction between this book and Jane Eyre. Yeah. Um, and we can maybe talk about some of those things, but uh, well, that, on its own, it's, it's that a was, powerful book itself. That was actually a major question that I had and I yeah. didn't know, I wasn't sure if you'd want to bring it up now or later, but like, do you think that someone could read this, this book without having read Jane Eyre or even necessarily being familiar with it? Mm-hmm. um on its own and and get as much get i don't want to put like a a measurement judgment on it in, in the sense of how much but like would it be a complete literary experience oh sure um that's that's hard to know uh because i because I we both have read, read jane it, Eyre. having yeah. read jane Eyre, right um i get the impression that you could uh, and I, as I was reading it, I kind of found myself wishing a little bit that I hadn't read Jane Eyre, mm. um, so that I could read it with that uh, that sort of attitude and impression, um, and and maybe see things a little bit differently. Um, yeah, I had I honestly had sort of the same um, wish myself. Like, I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, it would be because inter- I I agree with you, I. Mm-hmm. strongly suspect that um 
it would stand on its own quite handily. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I, you know, I. It's it's sort of the same impression I get when I think about like. What order do I introduce the Star Wars movies to my kids in? <laughs> right. You know, because <laughs> like um, I can introduce them in the order I watch them uh, because then I come to each one with the burden of knowing the one that came before. Right. Um, or is it more interesting to do it in a different order and see if they get something different out of it? Or is that dangerous because then maybe they won't love it the way I do? Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that's more or less the, the similar idea I have here. Um, I don't know if I can say more about it than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say something that was occurring to me in comparison with Jane Eyre here, and this isn't a difference, it's just, I think, a connection that, um, I I didn't see this brought up necessarily in any of the criticism in the book. Sure. Um, but I, I kept coming back to, um, uh, taking, uh, romantic and Victorian literature class with, uh, Dr. Hannah, uh, in... Uh, in college and um something that he pointed out when we read jane Eyre for that class was um it seems almost like towards the end when jane Eyre hears rochester's voice over whatever hundreds of miles or something and then winds up going back to him uh and that's like after this disaster has struck the the manor um and bertha has has burned it down and and such um like it seems like that sort of supernatural element just comes out of nowhere but there was a hint in fact earlier in the book almost right at the beginning that jane Eyre does have uh, a connection to something supernatural in that way yeah um so that you've got that connection with the character of jane Eyre, who has this supernatural sort of link uh, or something and then in this book um you've got the obia stuff obea i'm not sure how it's yeah. pronounced um that's you know like uh, what similar to what we would more commonly know of as voodoo um but uh just like a, a different island in the caribbean a different uh culture uh coming up with something something similar there with the the concept of the zombies and stuff too um I, yeah i i don't I, I shouldn't say too much here because um i don't know a lot about it but i think there's i don't think there's necessarily distinct so much as, mm. as a lot of overlapping right um uh term sets of terminology even voodoo as i understand it is a corruption of uh sure what the the actual practitioners of it how they call it or or pronounce it or maybe even the terminology that they use right and that's that's all i'll, I'll touch about that because i don't know what the correct yeah i don't i don't know, know enough about it but yeah it's certainly yeah those are those concepts are certainly interrelated right almost inextricably i would say right um but that's where like i think when you get to the end of this book and maybe this is where we can start talking a little bit about some of the differences and, and i want to talk about the end that could almost be a whole episode by itself i think yeah absolutely um but um uh, we we hear bertha who's like started to go crazy um by by the end here which like that that itself some of the criticism was like is she crazy or is she just being perceived as crazy and like uh there's um uh christophine who who talks about her mother being forced to her madness sure Uh, like the people around her made her crazy and so uh here's here's um uh here's our main character also going crazy um and is she just being forced to it and made that way by, by Rochester and, and so forth. Anyway, um, so she's hearing voices and things in, in a way that I think sounds similar. I didn't double check in Jane Eyre, um, but it sounds similar to how uh, Jane heard Rochester's voice um, on the last page. Um, I heard the parrot call uh, as he did when he saw a stranger, Kiela, Kiela, and the man who hated me was calling to Bertha, Bertha, the wind caught my hair and it streamed out like wings. Um, so like this, you know, it's a call of her name in the wind, uh, and such, um, from the same man, um, that Jane is hearing it from, even though, you know, he's unnamed here. And so that's, uh, something that's, uh, a difference anyway. Um, so that, that's, that's a, a connection there. And then, the way this is written, it sounds like if you've read Jane Eyre, we're right up to the end here, right up to the point where uh, she kills herself uh, in the amidst the flames uh, of this this mansion. 
um, and then jumps. And it's the second to last paragraph. Um, I called Tia and jumped and woke. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a dream. You know, it feels almost like a cheap trick, but it's it's done so well here that it's set up for the whole end of Jane Eyre, but then she wakes up. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a whole nother paragraph here where she sees Grace Poole, the, her caretaker there who's sitting there. Um, and she gets up and she talks to her a little bit, uh, says she's dreaming. Then she goes back and falls asleep. Um, then uh, the narrator says, I got up, took the keys and unlocked the door. I was outside holding my candle. Now at last I know why I was brought here and what I have to do. There must have been a draft for the flame flickered and I thought it was out. But I shielded it with my hand and burned it, and it burned up again to light me along the dark passage. And that's the end. Yeah. So it ends with her leaving, which if you have read Jane Eyre, you expect that she's going to go and fulfill her dream. Uh, what what she saw in her dream, you know, set fire to the mansion and kill herself. Right. Um, but is that what she's going to do? <laughs> you yeah. know? Well, the this all uh, actually calls back to something shortly after the bit of the... Uh, Carolyn Rohde um, uh, quote that you quoted earlier. Same same paragraph on on two seventeen and in mm. this edition. Uh, um, at the towards the end, uh, Rohde talks about something that was one of the major thoughts that I also had on this book, um, which was a, a Reese's narrative doomed, or sorry. Uh, with some ellipses at the beginning of this quote, Bertha stands at the end of Reese's narrative, doomed but triumphant, torch in hand, about to fall once again to the death literature originally gave her, but not just yet. Mm-hmm. Forever resisting the self-sacrificial closure of her plot in Jane Eyre, forever forestalling the closure of Reese's narrative, Antoinette slash Bertha in her last lines advances imperious opposition to her pre-scripted uh, you know, very clever pun there, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Prescription versus uh, uh, the script that, that Charlotte Bronte has given her. Her prescripted fate, leaving her potential act and her end to our memories of literary history. Yes. And there, I have several things to say about that. First yeah. of all, uh, in con- connection with uh, um, the idea, the, the question that I had earlier about, like, uh, what, like, would you be able to read this book without having read um uh without having read Jane Eyre you know that points at, at one potential different it's it's a different book if you have read Jane Eyre versus mm-hmm. if you haven't yeah absolutely um, but in a sense it's the same because it yeah. does it does well, that's... <laughs> leave the ending in it certainly implies an ending in in a way that you know mm-hmm. um what's the there's a term you know, in a way that that stories with that kind of non-closure, almost pre-climactic ending often do. There's there's an implied right. climax or an implied ending. But if you hadn't read Jane Eyre, you wouldn't know for sure. Mm-hmm. And if you have read Jane Eyre, you know you still can't be a hundred percent sure in the right. sense that you know. Uh, again, Rochester. You know, this is probably a cheap connection, but like Rochester isn't named. You know, mm-hmm. this could be a different. Uh, gothic manner in in midlands right. england with a just you know, a wife a, a um, parallel account that you know this is someone that's similar exactly um <laughs> and like part of that goes back to that that discussion of of a uh, sort of revisionist um yeah. history or, or revisionist interpretation and uh the the to me a line that stood out sort of in the midst of discussing this comes yeah. very close to the beginning actually page 18 in this edition so about about 10 pages into um the the narrative um there's a there's a break um and i think cuz i think this is christophine and antoinette discussing her her mother is it or is it with talking about um or talking about aunt cora maybe might be uh anyway um oh yeah they're talking about aunt cora and christine says 
frivolous woman in your mother's place i'd resent her behavior talking about ancora's failure to like Mm. use some of her wealth to help um uh antoinette and her mother uh and the the line that stood out to me and just on a on a gut level with no no actual scholarship to to prove it this is the line that almost feels like Jean Reese, like leaping out of the text at us. Yeah. None of you understand about us. I thought. Yeah. Um. And then the the footnote in the the uh, Norton Critical Edition uh, specifies us here refers to white creoles. Uh huh. Um, creole being used. You know that that's a term that that has has a uh, its meaning has morphed and transmogrified depending on you know Americans on uh, probably have a different understanding of it especially in our current era than uh you know british people did especially a hundred years ago or 200 years ago but in this context creole just refers to anyone i think potentially anyone born in jamaica mm-hmm. and so white creoles are are people of british descent but born in jamaica and again part of if if we're talking about a revisionist reading of of this book uh uh, or a reading of this book as a revisionist narrative, part of it has to do, I think, with that exact placement. Mm-hmm. Um, because as a white woman born of British descent, but in the Caribbean, there's a whole cross-section of uh, social social realities and social placements yeah. um, that is unique and potentially uniquely... Uh, um, damning in some uh-huh. ways to especially to one's psyche or or one's development because um you know you you're certainly and this is you know i i want to be careful and and say like this is a narrative that in the past i'm not saying gene reese is doing this but in the past slave owners have used to say like take pity on me a poor slave owner in mm-hmm. that you know th- these these british br- people of british descent they're certainly not black and they're rejected by the black community right. of the island for pretty understandable reasons uh-huh. having to do uh-huh. with slave ownership or ancestral slave ownership or, or whatever. Um, but because they're especially the ones born in the Caribbean, um, they're also considered lesser by British born white people. Right. Um, and in, you know, Victorian inflected, uh, uh, England, you know, and, and and the British Empire, uh, being a woman has its also its own set uh-huh. of challenges on top of that. Um, so you know, Bertha, from uh, the perspective of of a Charlotte Bronte, is is almost uniquely set up to be uh, an exotic character and a foreign mm. character, um, and you know, potentially. I don't know if, if belittled is is too dramatic a term, but but certainly a, a but the know. other character. yeah a very mm-hmm. othered mm-hmm. character certainly. Um, I want to point and, something out in that context here on the same page. Um, yeah, you get a lot of information about Christophine, who becomes important later. Um, but there on the last full paragraph, um, I got a uh, Half Blood Prince copy, oh. <laughs> um, which which I, I, I enjoyed. I don't always like the notes that other people have in the in the books that I read, but yeah, they uh, I enjoyed me, these ones. They drive me crazy if I either disagree with them or think they're stupid. Right, but, right. But yeah. it seems like these people were, were pretty intelligent. I actually have a couple business cards from, I think, previous owners um, <laughs> in, in here. Anyway. Um, so that sec, uh, that last full paragraph on page eighteen, um, the the one of the people who who came before me, and there are at least three different handwritings that I can identify in here. Wow. Uh, this is the one who wrote in pencil, uh, in very loopy script. Um, <laughs> circled the word black, okay. and the word white in the same line. Sure. Um, highlighting, I think, the concept of race that is present in the in the book. Yeah. Um, but uh, what my my mind went a slightly different direction. Not entirely. Not entirely. It's related. Uh, but you go two lines down below uh, between black and white, and you see. Um, well, the sentence begins that line right below. Drop by drop, the blood was falling into a red basin. Yeah. So you've got black, white, and red uh, all together here, connected with 
uh, death, uh, connected with blood, uh, and connected with uh, this Obeya um, yeah. stuff. After you've heard of Christophine being um, highlighted as uh, a Roman Catholic. So right. she's got this Catholicism connected with Obeya. Uh, this kind of uniting of the the other and the more familiar, but even there with the um, um, Catholicism in Victorian times too. That's right. itself sort of uh, an alien type thing. Well, it's it's a really interesting. Uh, I went through sort of a a Graham Greene phase in the last mm. year, sort of during the heart of lockdown, because you know how when you're like in sort of a very stressful global situation what you want is really just like deep dissections of um characters having religious and existential crises oh yeah mm-hmm. um yep that's how it goes so uh <laughs> graham green you know he has several several novels that take place in or around the the caribbean mm. um and i read his one of them being his novel the comedians which I believe takes place, I believe it's Haiti. Um, okay. And, you know, features a lot of this, you know, the, the uh, we'll have to talk about the concept of post-colonialism, but, um, or colonialism and post-colonialism at some point, but, yeah. you know, it, it fits very well in there. And I want to say it's in the comedians where uh, uh, there's a line to the effect that, um uh it was like uh, someone who practices voodoo or uh-huh. or yeah, was was saying uh uh this is this religion or this this practice is the bastard child of your catholicism and your uh your slave trade um, oh sure that and and that's you know true like there's there is a lot of catholicism that has been worked into um, yes this this religious practice it's mm-hmm. it's considered very much a a syncretistic um uh religion or or right or, i don't know I, I i don't know enough about it to know if like religion is the preferred I, terminology I, I know there are a couple of schools of thought by most practitioners it's not thought of as a religion but as a practice sure uh where they can be any other religion right. um but outside of practitioners of voodoo um, it's considered its own religion because like scholars of, its... of religion would probably not right. have a better word for it. Than... Right, right. Like, what do you call it other than a religion? Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, is kind of the attitude there, which is its own interesting sort of dynamic. Not necessarily part of the book, but I think it does relate here. That you know how you talk about it. Um, what does it call itself? What do you call it? You right. know, the concept of naming things um, here is is in the book you know what do you prefer it to be well you're right. going to call it that one of one of the the obvious connections there being that i know um some of like the the spirits that you call on in in voodoo um are catholic saints or are transmogrified versions of catholic oh yeah saints. So mm-hmm. there's there's a there's a quite quite obvious surface level syncretism there right um so that's an interesting connection the other connection that i and this may just be me bringing you know my own set of obsessions onto the book that uh but black white and red are also the three basic colors of alchemy mm-hmm. uh so again i don't know if that's a, a reference jean reese would have known or or you used on purpose i don't really see any I, other like reference to it directly I, I think part of it might be um at least related by a few degrees of separation yeah um I'm, I don't want to break any rules here, so I'm not going to, um, for, for how I, how I see when those three colors are, are brought together. Um, but huh, suffice it to say, you have talking about. the, the idea, at least in, um, uh, Victorian sort of centrality here, you have, when you have black, white, and red, you have the familiar and the other united together. Oh. Um, you've got the white and you've got the black. And you've got the red that is common between them. Sure. Um, and that's, I think, part of what's going on here with this this mystical stuff. Like, here's what's at the core. But how can you recognize that unity except through pain? Right. <laughs> um, you, you can't see it unless there's an injury. Sure. Um, unless well, there's a death. 
too. So maybe the, I don't know. I don't know, but maybe this is related to the one other thing I wanted to mine from that uh, Carolyn Rohde uh, passage. Um, excuse me, I quoted it uh, uh, before, but one of the things she says is that Bertha is resisting the self-sacrificial closure of her plot in Jane ah. Eyre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect, I haven't, uh, I've only poked into the rest of her the hmm. excerpt of her thing here, so I don't know if, if this is in there. Um, but something I know from, you know, other other literary criticism that I've read is often, especially in Victorian, like Victorian British literature, um, sacrifice and self-sacrifice is often demanded of sort of the least powerful yeah. people in a, in a given narrative. Um, and it's almost like, to, to me, it almost always reads as like a twisting of, uh, you know, a Christian style, a Christ sacrifice in the sense that first of all, it's usually demanded by the more powerful of the less powerful. Uh Um, and it's, and it's also often, and again, Bertha to me is a, is paradigmatic of this, like it's imposed on them right so they become a a type without any of like the the christ-like willingness or or uh intentionality of sacrifice sure um and so i i suspect that uh what what roadie is is getting at there has to do with sort of a a resistance to a, a role that's imposed on someone yeah, um, and that's that's often part of these sort of revisionist narratives, and and uh, um, I strongly suspect that that White Sargasso Sea fits into sort of the wave of feminism that was was a uh, cresting in in the late '60s and and in the '70s, um, mm-hmm. reclaiming some of the the power for those traditionally considered, um, you know. It, not powerful mm-hmm. uh so yeah i think that's yeah. that's a uh, well it, and it is well. it it is a, a a recurring motif you saw me search this on the computer how are all we talking but that end um and the ambiguity of it and the partial almost on the verge of suicide sort of thing reminded yeah. me immediately of kate chopin's the awakening right um and the ending in that book where um the the protagonist starts walking into the ocean um and uh i, I remember i read that in high school and the the teacher um made sure to emphasize for us that like the ocean had this symbolism of freedom to yeah. it and so walking into the ocean um was a sort of self-freeing accompanied with self-sacrifice. Sure. Which, like, I don't, I still don't know how much sense it makes to me. It does make some, um, but like that, that sort of, um, here, here it's, it's fire, um, in, in Wide Sargasso Sea. Right. Um, despite the fact that this character also was surrounded by the ocean for the majority of the book and her life, um, but the older I get, the more suspicious I am of, and I don't know if, if this is what your English teacher was doing or not, but the more suspicious I am of like the idea that there's like a dictionary of symbols that all writers sort of refer to (laughs) the idea that like the ocean always means, means freedom. Uh, Right. And certainly, you know, there, there are certainly in novels, in traditions or in conversations with each other, there's, yeah the concept of shared symbols and and you know cultural touchstones and things like that but it's like i'm much more inclined to try to mine that from within a text and and sort of stand in a text and and look at its reference out rather than yeah taking the idea that oh this well this is in it so it it means that like you know Uh even just thinking about the ocean like Uh Uh, it it means something very different in, say, the Wide Sargasso Sea. Mm-hmm. We we keep using the definite article. It is just Wide, wide Sargasso, Sargasso Sea. sea. Yeah. Um, 
But it means something very different in this book than in, say, like a Scottish ballad from the 18th century. Oh, sure. Or even an Irish ballad from the 17th century. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, different uh, cultures, different times, different locations are going to define these things a little bit differently. So. But even a lot of those, you know, between British British culture in the 19th century and Scottish in the 18th and, mm-hmm. and Irish in the 17th, like, that's a, a culturally pretty close, uh, you know, relative, relatively close set of paradigms and, right. and you could have the sea meaning wildly Absolutely. wildly different things mm-hmm. um yeah so anyway take that michael's english teacher haha <laughs> <laughs> yeah um no I, I i don't know how much more i have to say about that specifically but um sure like that's it, it conceptually seemed similar to me I, I had to check the publication date of that and i knew it was earlier than this book right. um but it was 1899 okay that the awakening was published, um, so sixty-seven years before this book. Right. Um, there, it, I mean, this this is looking back to a book older than that in Jane Eyre. Right. Um, so awakening comes between there, and it's an American book instead of a British one, uh, like Jane Eyre. Uh, I, I I wonder what sort of dialogue the texts are having. Sure is kind of my question <laughs> well that's that's the other thing about like some of that too is like you know sometimes people would tend to put text in dialogue in an artificial mm-hmm. way um you'd say oh these are major touchstones of what we later have now applied the label of feminist literature to right they must be in dialogue with each other whereas you know as you as you rightly point out like chopin's book because it's american it might be taking up a completely different right strain there, um, there are similarities there they might be talking about some of the same things but or they might be in dialogue but they might be you know you you can't necessarily just assume right it's it's not that. clear it's not on the surface without having some more information there yeah um mostly it's just that the this sort of these elements that are in common intrigue me yeah yeah and i mean certainly again it's you know it's a question that we're we're just not haven't done the research to be able to even guess at really but like yeah there's you have a chicken or egg thing right like Mm -hmm. do these things come up because these texts are all in conversation with each other or do they come up because they're they're you know intelligent female writers (laughs) responding to cultures that were themselves in dialogue with each other and influential on each other um yeah though it's always interesting like with the caribbean specifically because geographically it's obviously you know much closer to the american continent but historically it has often has as much to do with in or more to do with england and even france Mm -hmm. than with the united states yeah you know the 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 british and the french um and even the spanish to some extent uh kept their colonies in in uh the caribbean and and were influential in the caribbean uh long after the united states developed as its own thing and because you know of of not wanting to sort of step on each other's toes like the the united states often stayed out of the caribbean so it was very much um culturally probably much more influenced by by europe and i'm making it sound of course much more cut and dried than it actually was right but um that, i mean that's the simplification but yeah in the time that we have here it has to be yeah especially <laughs> since this is not actually a history podcast right even though ethan tries to make it one at any given opportunity uh, we touch on it once in a while you know for 20 minutes at for a time 20 minutes yeah yeah <laughs> um well do you have anything more to talk about at this point uh nothing really comes to mind that i can't save sure yeah we are coming uh up on the end of our time for this episode so we'll we'll save our our additional comments for the next episode we'll continue talking about wide sargasso sea gentle listener uh no one lost the episode this time so come back uh in a couple weeks and see if someone loses then um, but, uh, if you haven't read Wide Sargasso Sea already, we spoiled the ending for you, but go ahead and read it. Uh, give us your feedback on that book, uh, and then after this book we will be discussing Despair by Vladimir Nabokov. Um, 
So give us your feedback on that as well. Go to the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line so that we know what you're talking about. Uh, or you can contact us at Room with Scotch on Twitter uh, or on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. If you request to join, we will let you in uh, unless you've driven someone to madness and suicide. Um, we'll also do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, but we condone plagiarism because we think it's funny. Uh, so go to our website, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. There's a form towards the top of that page. Fill that form out, uh, and we'll do the homework that you have been assigned, uh, and hopefully you'll find that it is fun. If you like this podcast, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the Fiasco RPG Improv Podcast, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, the Freddy the Pig Series Book Discussion Podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast. Rate and review us and all of our uh, the shows that you love uh, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, since we don't pay to advertise, that helps uh, other people find out about the show. Uh, Ethan, where can people find you? I am at Bjartlet on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, I also do a webcomic called Pin Porter Girl Detective. That's Google Pin Porter Girl Detective, and the website should come up. Uh, it has good art, and also <laughs> I write words for it. Fantastic. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. And so, uh, until next time, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if we've been displaced from the Caribbean and locked in an attic somewhere in England. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's correct. <laughs> you make me cry. You just made me cry to say it. <laughs> Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.